Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. I knew just as a community member, our tribes are in trouble because I know the experiences and resources, but then as a journalist, I thought, I had to ask the question, are our tribes in trouble? Are they even ready for this? The COVID-19 pandemic exposed a gap in access to health care as well as a lack of health data for many minority groups in the U.S. Perhaps not surprisingly, this included the indigenous communities across the country. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Jordan Bennett Begay is the first female news executive and top editor of Indian Country Today, a 40-year-old independent, nonprofit multimedia news enterprise that serves indigenous communities with news, entertainment, and opinion. Jordan is also a board member of the Native American Journalists Association. Jordan, welcome to It's All Journalism. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Yate. <laughs> so first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, where'd you grow up and what got you interested in journalism? So I'm Diné Navajo. So I grew up and I grew up on the Navajo Nation, just on the eastern border of the reservation on the New Mexico side of Navajo, because our tribal lands extend or span across three states, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. So I grew up on the New Mexico side in the land of enchantment, the land of green chili. And yeah, I grew up there and went to school in Colorado nearby and got my master's in journalism at Syracuse University at Newhouse. And what got me interested in journalism was I, so I, I studied athletic training as an undergrad and it was very science heavy, very just time intensive. And I needed a break and I knew I loved to write and I, I, I wrote and like read quite a bit, I even read a lot growing up as a growing up and I thought maybe this is be a fun time to explore you know the creative side of me so I signed up for this class and I and I always tell people I accidentally like fell into journalism because I was looking forward to this class that was about I thought about blogging and video and this is before pulling together multimedia packages online were a thing and I signed up for this class and when it came to the first day of class, I got the syllabus and it was news media writing. And I thought, holy cow, what did I get myself into? Am I in the right class? I had no idea what I was doing. And I got so terrified and I was like, I don't know if I could do this. Like I, I didn't read the news growing up as a kid. I mean, the, the most I did was my parents made my sister and I watch the morning news and evening news because you know, they told us we had to stay up to date on current events and we're like, oh, okay. So we just did as part as like, you know, a household thing. And, you know, we have conversations about what we saw or just what was going on in the world. But my professor in that first class really, you know, she was the one who said to, who guided me and said, it's okay. Like, what do you want? Do you want to try something new? And she's like, I'll help you out with it. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I was like, what? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> So I really enjoyed the class. I loved, and what I really, what brought me into it was just learning something new every day and exploring different areas of the world. And I just loved the fact that I get to learn, like I said, every single day and 
it suits very much my personality of just talking to people, listening to their stories, learning about what drives them, what motivates them, and seeing the world through their eyes instead of mine, because, you know, we're all different. And I love seeing like how the world works and how the world is interconnected, which is what the pandemic is showing us now. I mean, we're all operate and are definitely rely on each other. And, you know, looking at your biography, it's clear that, you know, you said that, that you liked writing, you know, art and creation appear to be themes that, of other jobs and other things that you've done. You taught high school journalism and video production in theater in New Mexico. Tell me about that experience. What led you there? And what was it like teaching journalism to uh, high schoolers? Oh, I really loved it. This opportunity came right after J school for me. I wasn't having much luck with funny jobs. And then the magazine I was wanting to work for, they just folded. So I thought, oh, I don't know where to go. But I moved home primarily just to spend more time with my grandparents because they're, you know, one of the, like, the best people in the world to me and they're getting older and they weren't doing so well. So I moved home to be closer to them and just to spend more time with them. And then, okay, I guess my old uh, vice president, vice president, vice principal, she was principal at my old high school at the time and knew and has been keeping up with my journey. So she asked me if I wanted to teach because I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. <laughs> it was a very small town. I guess in Indian country, it's described as like a border town. So that's where I grew up and that's where my experiences are. So I thought, oh, I might as well do it if I'm teaching journalism video production. And I love working with, with youth. I mean, I've worked with Native youth and just youth my entire life. My mom... It was like a form of birth control for my mom, for us. <laughs> but um, yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy their energy. I enjoy just like their innocence and just their outlook at the world. And I just really love how, I mean, kids from like, you know, toddlers, infants to like high school, I really enjoy their energy and just how they view the world and all their new and like sometimes kooky ideas, but they're fearless. And I loved presenting them and working with them um, and presenting with like huge opportunities that they don't know that are out there for them. It was a really wonderful experience. I enjoyed, it was just nice. And I think it was really good for me as a journalist too, because, you know, journalism became second nature, but I had to also think about why I do the things that I do as a journalist, you know? Um, I mean, I learned it, I practiced it, but it really had me tap into like the why and the how of things. And, and you know, and, and you know, kids like they ask, why did you do that? Or why didn't you do this? <laughs> or how come you didn't do it this way? And it really had me, you know, thinking beyond um, just asking more questions to myself and making myself a better journalist. And, and it was just really fun for the video production class too. Like we had to... I mean, they not only did just like creating a broadcast segment, they created like short films or um, short videos um, and just acting. And that's where drama came in. And, you know, all all in all, like, you know, these three classes I taught were different forms of storytelling and, and just to show students like how they can express themselves or even speak out on issues or highlight issues. Um, that are important to them and tell their stories, whether it's like collectively, individually, um, it was very powerful just to see and just to see their growth from 
first day of class to like the last day of class, it was definitely transforming experience for me. So, so tell me about the, the Indian country today. Um, you know, when did you first become aware of it and, and how'd you end up being a, an editor there? Yeah, sure. Um, about college is when I became aware of it. Um, they went online or digital, um, in about 2011-ish or 2012, maybe. And it was just right when I was finishing college um, is when I started reading about them and keeping up to date, um, even after like undergrad. I mean, that's where I kept up with, um, they were the news outlet that broke Standing Rock, right? They're the ones first reporting about it um, back then. And they soon became the source of what is Standing Rock, who is Standing Rock, who, you know, is this, what, all about indigenous news, right? Um, so I write about them since then and history of um, Indian country today. Indian country today is, like you said in the beginning, it's a 40-year-old newspaper. It started out, um, Tim Gallego, who is Lakota, started it back in 1981. And it started out as the first, the, the Lakota Times. And then he, uh, the, I think he sold it or it, maybe it turned into um, the change ownership and went to, turn it to Indian country today. And then it went to the Oneida Indian Nation in New York. They ran it for a while and turned it into like a digital platform or a website and a magazine. And then it got too expensive. So they gifted, the tribe gifted ICT to the National Congress of American Indians. And then they hired my former boss, Mark Trahant, who's just been a great mentor and you know, a fearless leader. And he pretty much revived it and made it, you know, the digital platform it is today. Now we have like a digital arm and a broadcast arm. And now we've grown from, man, when I started as a first staff reporter, it was only three of us on the editorial team. And now, and maybe like three or four staff on the team. And now we're probably 22 full-time. And yeah, there's also part-time and we have contractors that probably about more than 30 on the team now. So we've definitely grown a lot in the past now four years. Well, tell me about your current position before we turn on the microphones. We were talking about how you, you live in the Washington DC area. What's your beat here? What, you know, what types of stories are you covering? I was the first staff reporter and producer for ICT hired in August, 2018. And man, I covered everything on the gamut of Indian country. I covered like education policy, I went to Senate hearings here and anything that's going on the Hill, but also Indian country is huge. So I would cover something maybe in New Mexico and the Pacific Northwest, a variety of different beats in business and, you know, native youth. It was everything and anything. I mean, and even this is a good problem to have, at least like for me <laughs> today, from that day, I kept saying and telling Mark, we need more writers, we need more reporters because I can't tell you like how often I had to reprioritize my story list <laughs> or at least drop some stories off. Cause there isn't like enough time or enough, again, enough people, you know, to tell these stories. So what's a typical day like, and how do you choose what stories you're going to cover? So right now in my current role as editor, I don't write as much, but before I guess I, I wrote more like when I was managing editor or 
deputy managing editor, my other <laughs> roles that I had here. A lot of it, you know, of course, the pandemic was a big focus for us and health is part of my background. And so I think that lent a lot to my coverage and our coverage overall, because I knew it was coming, I knew it was happening. I have a public health background, so I definitely had a leg up on that. Education, I love entertainment. I love writing profiles and, you know, there's a lot of really great change makers just doing incredible things in Indian country. I mean, that part of the industry that's booming now is, you know, the entertainment industry with reservation dogs and the Rutherford Falls, you know, two big TV shows with indigenous representation and something also mainstream media and just like mainstream America are seen and being blown away by, you know, there's just literally a lot of, you know, and even Recently, um, we had a Navajo guy who is part of, you know, sending equipment to Mars. You know, there's just really neat things going on in Indian country that I think a lot of America know that Native people are involved in these great endeavors. When you say Indian country, you know, what does that encompass? Indian country, so it depends on what context people use it as. So, you know, in the federal documents and in the treaties, they define Indian country, you know, as I guess, like a legal term, but to me, it is in indigenous communities, tribal nations, far and foremost, tribal nations, because tribal nations are sovereign nations. You know, they have treaties with the government. They have nation to nation relationships with the federal government. And so to me, that is Indian country, it are tribal nations, also the people that live within it. It's also includes native people who don't live you know, on tribal lands, because most people, Native people live in urban areas. They live in New York City and Los Angeles and Seattle and many parts of Alaska. So when I say Indian country, I mean like indigenous nations or indigenous communities. Okay. As you kind of describe the variety of stories that you're able to cover, there, there are a lot of things that that affects and a lot of issues that are going to be affecting the, the communities within Indian country. You mentioned uh, COVID and in, in your background in, in health. What was the story in Indian country as far as health and, and COVID? What were some of the, the issues that sort of came out of that experience? Yeah, so I think the first thing that I saw, I mean, just when the pandemic, which before it was called the pandemic, was what does this mean to our tribes? I think just for me personally, I've been always fascinated with epidemics, outbreaks, infectious, infectious diseases. So when I was tracking this, you know, overseas and saw that this was coming and I knew just as a community member, our tribes are in trouble because I know the experiences or resources, but then as a journalist, I thought I had to ask the question, are our tribes in trouble? Are they even ready for this? So I had to reach out to you know different experts to see what the situation looked like, what their emergency preparedness situations were like, what resources were there. So that was the first question. And it turns out like tribes weren't ready. And then just over time, like when it hit Indian country, the first case got there. And then even on my own like homeland in Navajo, the first case got there and it just it spread like wildfire. We had, you know, one case one day and later that day, there was, I think, three cases. That next day, there was five. And by the end of the week, maybe, maybe not even the end of the week, five days later, there were 25. 
and with that, I focused on with like just a huge spread of these cases, I was really looking at the big picture and trying to see how this is affecting, you know, tribal nations across the board, across the country. Right. So I had to find out where the data was coming from or if there was any data. IHS at the time in March 2020, they weren't really, at least they were really hesitant on releasing, you know, just like any other health entity, they were really hesitant on releasing information, what cases and where it was happening at, but tribes were releasing it online to their communities. So I started a database just on a cool spreadsheet and thought, oh, this would really be really neat to track, at least for, for me and for our newsroom. And then my editor, Mark, at the time, he was saying, you know, this is, we should share this. This is public information. I was like, okay, you're right. And so we made the database public and tracked cases, put what tribe they're coming from, what the health department was there, who the contact person was there, at least, you know, how I confirmed the cases, but also like dropped links in there because a lot of ASCs, uh, tribal officials, or at least like nations, you know, they share this data online on their website or even on their social media pages, on press releases, on their radio stations. So I had to provide proof, like this is where I'm getting the data and it's publicly available. That transparency to me was really important because that's what people are looking for, you know, from journalists nowadays, they want transparency. And so when I put that out there for scrutiny, I think it gained more credibility and gained eyes. And then this native epidemiologist came came and just said, Hey, can I map your data? And I was like, Oh, sure. Go for it. <laughs> so she mapped it and created like hotspots, which was really great. Cause we were really wanting to do that, but we didn't know how. So she came at the right time. And pretty soon she linked us up with Johns Hopkins and Johns Hopkins partnered with us to build this comprehensive database for Indian country. They created a map also with tribal lands and County map laying on top of each other. So you can see, you know, where these cases are happening. And also at the time too, I think I should mention, we were the only ones keeping the mortality rate. Nobody else in the country for Native people were keeping track of that data. Did you get a sense from your audience that they were responding to this, that this was something, this is information that they really wanted and needed? Oh, definitely, definitely. And that's why I created it too, because IHS, Indian Health Service, can only release data based on the 12 regional areas that they're structured by. And that's how, you know, the federal government structured them. So that's how they could release the data. But I kept seeing on social media and just hearing from, you know, talking back home with people um, whenever I was just visiting with people over the phone, they were saying they wanted to know more, right? They wanted to know what their tribe looked like, what's the situation look like in their area. That's what piqued my interest even more in saying, oh, this is definitely needed, They wanted a local lens, but also like a national lens to that. Now, I know that with some of the communities, you know, in my day job during 2020 and 21, I was covering, you know, Washington, D.C. And around the Washington, D.C. area, D.C. and and some of the communities in, in the suburbs, you know, the pandemic kind of exposed inequities, you know, in different, you know, diversity groups. Do you think that the pandemic, you know, had sort of a, a similar effect? Oh, definitely. I think the pandemic definitely highlighted a lot of these problem areas in public health and the health infrastructure in Indian country, at least. And we've always known that there were issues with 
the Indian health system, but the pandemic just, you know, shined a light on it and said, this is a real problem. We need to fix it, which, you know, a lot of advocates, tribal leaders, community members have seen for decades, for years. And I mean, people have always said, IHS is historically underfunded, but I think the pandemic just said, like, you know, showed that, yes, they are underfunded and this is, this is an issue. I think even given that though, you know, life is about duality. So I think looking at the situation too, there's also strengths to uh, the pandemic also showed strengths of Indian country and the Indian health system. So for one was the vaccine distribution was huge in indigenous communities. There was a survey done by the Indian, Indian Urban Indian Health Institute. They took a sample of like Native people and surveyed them. I think it was about maybe around the 3000 mark. And the big number that came out of that survey was about 75% of those people said they would get the vaccine. And the number one reason was they wanted to do it for their community. It showed a lot of like Native people's values in, you know, they cared for their community. They cared for their cousins or aunties or elders which I thought was really phenomenal because tribal nations were leading the vaccine movement, right. Compared to the rest of the country. And the second part of that story too, is IHS is a system, you know, they know how to distribute resources and helped with the vaccine distribution and getting more people vaccinated. <laughs> I was laughing when I got home. Cause I, Native people love to organize. I cannot tell you how much they love to organize. They love to organize like, and they do it so well with, I don't know, powwows, fairs, basketball tournaments, basketball games, like they will have everything planned out to a T. And so when I got home to get my vaccines, cause I had to go home. I, I couldn't even like get my vaccine here on the East coast because there's no place the state told me, I remember when I registered for it, they said, oh, it'll take you several months. And by that time, I think it was about February or March, they're like, oh, so it'll take Virginia State Health several months to get you vaccinated. And by that time, my whole family, immediate and distant family were vaccinated. And I was like, nope, I'm going home. I am not waiting. <laughs> I am not waiting. So I went home, got vaccinated. And I was really surprised when I got online, like it was so organized, but also it was like, I don't want to say it was like giving out candy, but they had every vaccine available. And I was like, wow, this is phenomenal. It was great, you know, because again, eggshells is a system, but I think it's important to note for people to know that the healthcare is part of our treaties and also tribes also run their own health facilities that are independent of IHS. And oftentimes these health facilities are better than the state or like local health facilities nearby. So when the vaccine distribution was happening and people couldn't get vaccinated at local hospitals, health clinics, or even like at hospitals owned by tribes were opening up their lines to non-native people saying, oh, you can't get it. We have some extra come over, you know? So I thought that was really, like really neat to show how the generosity and also show like the love, you know, we had for each other as humans. I think, you know, and, and this is something people don't always talk about that, you know, there were really beautiful and powerful moments of humanity that happened during the pandemic. People sort of forget that over the general, you know, the general unpleasantness of the, of the entire experience. It's kind of great. That was something you were able to witness in your community. 
So you're also a board member on the Native American Journalist Association. Tell me about that organization. Yeah, so NAJA has been a huge part of my life and my career. I mean, they're a great support network. You know, the organization's mission is to increase representation of Native journalists in newsrooms across the board, not only at tribal news outlets or even at regional news outlets or intertribal news outlets, but in mainstream media as well. But a part of the mission, too, is to, you know, fight for the First Amendment for tribal press, because there are some like tribal news outlets that are owned by tribal nations as well, like they're not independent. There are a few that are independent, like the Navajo Times or the Cherokee Phoenix. So, you know, this is like a huge support network and an organization to support tribal media and just Native journalists in that way. You mentioned mainstream media and trying to get representation there. You know, mainstream newsrooms, obviously you're, you're focused on the Indian country. You know, what is it that people in the mainstream press could do better in their coverage of this audience of, of Indian country? Oh, I can do so many things better. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, everything? Everything. Every, there's so many things. I mean, like, where do I start? Just give me like two or three. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start small. What could they start with? Yeah, I think I always tell non-Native journalists that they can start with learning more about federal Indian law and policy and just history, Indigenous history, because Indigenous history, the timeline of it is is very different from the timeline of American history, right? But both histories are very interwoven and they're both you know, part of one history. What we're taught in schools is American history side and maybe, you know, there are Native history classes that are taught as electives, maybe in a chapter in a book and sometimes a paragraph in a book and sometimes one line, depending what history class you take. I mean, federal Indian policy and federal Indian law are just huge, 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 because that gives you a look at how colonization affects Native people, how it affected Native people back then and also still today, right? So there are still court cases going all the way to the Supreme Court because of federal Indian law that that has happened as in place right now. So I guess number one that I think read about that. Two is to not parachute in and out of indigenous communities. If you're going to commit to covering Indian country, it needs to be consistently and done with care. And also it needs to be done with a lot of patience. Because, I mean, there's just like a huge history of distrust between Native people and the federal government and also with Native people in the media and, you know, and Native people in medical research too, right? So there's a lot of times people going in and out of the communities, taking, taking, extracting, extracting and, you know, exploring Native people and their issues and their resources that a lot of times they're, they're just tired of it, right? And uh, you know, I think that needs to be done consistently with care. And the third thing is Naja has a great bingo card and just like other like reporting guides. So I'll focus on the bingo card first. So this bingo card is to help newsrooms to not get bingo on their stories. And so not the story is not just bleeding with stereotypes and, you know, just like you can get bingo if, you know, if you have a ceremony and headdresses and sacredness and teepees all in one line, I always point people to that bingo card. And the other one is Naja has reporting guides on their website. 
And this will help reporters with covering different issues like the Violence Against Women Act, the Indian Child Welfare Act, how to cover Métis, Inuit, and First Nations people. The latest one we came out with, the Tribal Nations Media Guide, and there are a series of questions to ask the, to have the reporter ask themselves and guide them in learning because no two nations are the same. No two tribal nations are the same, right? There are more than 570 federally recognized tribes, more than two dozen state recognized tribes, and each one has their own language, customs, traditions, beliefs. So governments, they're all different. And I'm glad that you shared those resources because things aren't going to change. You were talking about a you know Indian news story. The first thing that goes into my mind is I'm always seeing video of some of the things that you describe, which are just you know oh this is this is Indian country. This is what it looks like. This is what it it is. But it's not really acknowledging the reality of the lives of the people who live there and uh, the shared experience that, that they have. Starting off by saying don't parachute in, I mean, that's a problem in so many different ways in the way certainly national news outlets, you know, go and cover and, and try and, and as quickly as they can present a story that they had known absolutely nothing about and haven't made the effort. So I guess probably the best thing is you know, make the effort and try to access some of those resources that you that you shared. And the issue of diversity, I know, you know, the conversations about diversity over the last couple of years in newsrooms, this idea that there needs to be better representation in the newsroom, more people with different life experiences, you know, that's going to enrich your coverage. You know, is that something that Naja is uh, working on at all? Oh, definitely. We're definitely all about that. And also, I'm a huge advocate for not only getting more reporters in mainstream newsrooms, but also getting indigenous editors too, or individuals who are in management roles, those positions making big decisions because indigenous journalists need that, need that support. Again, that's where the decisions are made. And I mean, Nadja just, yeah, is a huge supporter of that and even can give more trainings to people and how else to do better in covering indigenous communities. Going forward, what do you what do you see as the stories that you're going to be working on over the next couple of years, or even just the next couple of months? Oh my gosh! Of course, our newsrooms be covering the midterm elections. There have been record numbers of Native candidates running for public office in the past two elections, so that's going to be a focus for us. And the pandemic, of course. Mark Trahan is leading our Indigenous Economics Project, and I'm really excited for that one because it's been an area that hasn't been explored in depth. And other areas are just focusing on water. This year is the 100th year of the Colorado River Compact. In the Southwest, there's a housing series that we want to do and focus on. But those are the big ones, <laughs> just to name a few. <laughs> And you describe that, and that is, you know, those are things that other newsrooms would cover because that's, you know, cover in their communities, the same types of things that affect them. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Jordan, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been really fascinating. I really appreciated the opportunity to learn about you, Indian Country Today, and uh, Naja. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>